This podcast is produced and issued by Morningstar Investment Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. The content is intended for U.S. audiences only. Individuals featured in this podcast are employed by Morningstar, Inc. and its subsidiaries. This includes, but is not limited to, Morningstar Investment Management, LLC and Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services are registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode. If there's anyone who knows about being afraid, it's a horror writer, a wordsmith who excels at scaring others. And the genre has produced few greater than H.P. Lovecraft. The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, Lovecraft once wrote. And the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. Fear of the unknown is certainly no stranger to the investment world these days. We're living in scary times. And the investors who aren't feeling jumpy right now tend to fall into one of two categories. Those who have a plan and those who don't have a clue. Hello again and welcome to Simple But Not Easy. I'm Philip Strail, Global Head of Research at Morningstar Investment Management. And we're here to talk about two worrisome topics in the investment community in 2022. Rising rates and inflation. You wouldn't think that fearing either of those things means fearing the unknown, judging by some of the louder voices in the market. They'll tell you how sure they are about how bad things are going to be. We won't do that because we don't pretend to know. But we'll tell you about investing for the long term and about building robust portfolios in the hopes of increasing your chances of weathering whatever's over the horizon. In today's episode, which is taken from a previous webinar, we'll hear from Tyler Dan, our head of research in the Americas, Ricky Williamson, a portfolio manager and head of outcomes-based strategies, and John Owens, senior portfolio manager of our select equity offerings. We're talking about how to manage your fear of the unknown when it comes to inflation and rising rates, and why doing so can help you avoid mistakes of making the wrong moves at the wrong time. We believe it's a critical conversation to have, and we hope you agree. Let's give it a listen. Welcome to today's webinar focused on helping protect client portfolios from inflation and rising rates. I'm Brett Greenspan, a portfolio specialist with Morningstar Investment Management. In addressing two of the biggest investor concerns kicking off 2022, I think it's worth highlighting something Dan Kemp, our global chief investment officer, wrote not too long ago. Dan pointed out that one of the biggest risks to the investor is themselves, specifically when they're too optimistic or too fearful. Today, we want to talk about two topics leading to a lot of concern and fear among investors, rising rates and inflation. We want to dive into these topics to help investors understand them and manage some of that fear that's driven by uncertainty and can lead to mistakes like buying and selling at inopportune times. Because when clients don't understand these key drivers, they're far more likely to give in to these behavioral biases. So our job is twofold. We build robust portfolios and manage them with a valuation-driven approach to prepare for rising rates, inflation, and any other concerns the future may hold. And we also remind investors that despite what they're seeing and hearing in the news, investing is a long-term endeavor, whatever highs, lows, and volatilities we may have to endure in the short term. So today, we're fortunate to be hearing from three experts in this area. Tyler Dan, our head of research in the Americas, will discuss how to talk to your clients about rates as well as how to position their portfolios for fixed income. Ricky Williamson, portfolio manager and head of U.S. outcome-based strategies, will walk us through the U.S. Real Return Series, which focuses on capital appreciation by selecting the most attractive investments across asset classes to generate a targeted return goal above inflation over a specific time horizon. And finally, John Owens, Senior Portfolio Manager in our Select Equity Series, is here to talk about the all-cap equity portfolio, a go-anywhere strategy that concentrates on domestic and international stocks across the market cap spectrum. All right. So with that out of the way, let's kick things off and start with Tyler. Tyler, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I think we want to begin with the discussion about the risk of rising rates and how to discuss the risk and address these concerns with clients who have fixed-income-heavy portfolios. So I'll hand it over to you to kick things off. Thanks, Brett. And I appreciate the opportunity to be here. And of course, your question. Uh, it's a big topic. The rising rates is a big topic. And it's one that, frankly, we haven't really needed to consider for a while. And I guess by that, I mean that for the most part, over the last 40 years, fixed income markets have become accustomed to a broad regime of falling policy rates and bond yields. And this has served as a long-term tailwind for fixed income returns. 
um, to the extent that this regime shifts, and I think that we see that with Fed funds, the U.S. Fed funds rate near zero, other policy rates in the developed world especially are below the zero bound, and you couple that with prevailing inflation measures well above policy objectives, it's not impo impossible uh, in the least to envision such a shift. Uh, so fixed income returns could ultimately be vulnerable. Um, for one thing, inflation tends to erode returns. And then on another uh, element to think about would be rising policy rates, which are typically imposed in an effort to offset inflation, tend to negatively impact bond pricing. And that creates a double whammy of sorts for fixed income investors. And I think this looms quite importantly when we consider, according to Fed data, that 53 trillion of fixed income investments are held by U.S. households and nonprofits. And this accounts for approximately 33% of assets and 37% of net worth. So in short, if we have a durable regime change here, it could present an unfavorable broad market backdrop for the return stream of broad, of a you know, pretty significant asset class. It's a hefty part of people's portfolios, and it's also been experiencing broad tailwinds for the past 40 years. Yeah, uh, Tyler, I, I, I want to jump in, and that's great insight. And uh, I think you're you're hitting a lot of the fears that are out there, but it, it you know it's frankly a, a bit of doom and gloom. So uh, maybe on the other yeah. side of that, you can you can walk us through some of those fears. It's yes, and it's and it's not all gloom and doom. Um, and I do think that there are some important, and I think potentially off, uh, offsetting considerations. Uh, for one, um, you think of the backdrop that leads to uh, inflation bubbling up, uh, leads to these increases in policy rates. And it, you know, it's driven by a broad economy that I think at least policymakers believe could sustain higher rates, uh, meaning one that's strong. Uh, and certainly fixed income markets, uh, so some of them can benefit from that. Uh, corporates, whether that be high yield or, or investment grade in the U.S., could benefit from that uh, as credit quality, uh, you know, remains strong. And, um, and so that could lead to um, you know, relatively good performance of corporates. Um, another example could be local currency emerging market debt. Um, these are a number of different countries where they've already been raising policy rates to levels well in excess of developed market policy rates. Uh, you've got relatively robust economies that on, on balance have been uh, recovering nicely uh, from COVID. And uh, so you, you have, you know, potentially a yield differential, and then you have the also potential for, for currency returns there. Um, and then a couple of other technical elements here. I mean, even with policy rates rising, you, you do have a benefit for fixed income investors, which would be benefiting from reinvestment of coupons at higher rates into a new higher yield regime. So the, the impact from price loss due to yields moving higher is somewhat mitigated. Um, so I, I guess what I would say here is that um, the backdrop does change with the potential regime change, but it's not uniform. There are offsets. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's not strange to think of how after yields adjust, we, we could experience positive fixed income returns. So all is not lost, but it's definitely more challenging. Thanks, Tyler. That's great and helpful. And, and certainly uh, it's a complex topic. So it's great to hear your insights and, and try to help alleviate some of those concerns. And, uh, you know, I, I just also think it's helpful to hear, you know, the macroeconomic perspective, even though we tend to be bottom up investors. So, so thank you for that. And uh, I, I think that positions us well to go a step deeper uh, to the portfolio level and turn to Ricky Williamson, our portfolio manager and head of U.S. outcome based strategies. And uh, Ricky, I'll turn to you. Uh, Tyler brought up a lot of good points about potential risk, perhaps opportunity out there associated with the rising rate environment. So uh, I'll turn to you to talk, let you talk about your views and how that may impact things at the portfolio, excuse me, portfolio level. Yeah, thanks, Brett, uh, for having me. And I appreciate the question. Um, I think it's important to consider that, you know, there's always more than one variable that goes into portfolio positioning, as Tyler mentioned. Um, whether that be valuations, diversification considerations, um, economic robustness, definitely the specific mandate of the portfolio, and even geopolitical events as we're, we're sort of seeing play out this week. Um, 
But when it comes to the Fed beginning to raise the policy rate, you know, all these considerations certainly take on a slightly heightened importance. Um, you have to not only now look at what is already priced into the market, um, but also how correlations can shift pretty quickly. Um, so at the highest level, you know, over the last two decades, basic portfolio theory would suggest that you know, bonds would gain value and equities are losing. Um, but obviously, that has not been the case here to date. This fixed income has lost value along with the stock market. Um, and there are reasons for that, uh, including inflationary pressures, as well as changes to the discount rate and equity valuations. Um, so I guess my point there is that you need to be really careful about your diversification assumptions. Um, and I'd argue that cash and short-term bonds as a source of dry powder are more important today than they really have been in quite some time. Um, but there's a big caveat to that. Um, and that's what you, you always don't want to make the assumption that longer term yields are going to move up in lockstep with the Fed funds rate. Um, and the hiking cycle that began in 2004, the longer end of the curve actually came down and the 20 and 30 year yields were, were over 100 bips less than they were when the Fed began hiking. Um, and there are multiple other examples of short term rates moving up quicker than longer term rates, leading to a flatter yield curve. Um, and even today, you know, we're seeing rate hikes priced into the short end of the curve. The longer maturity yields have not been moving as much. Um, as you can see from this slide showing that, you know, market participants are largely, have largely been assuming that you, the yield curve are flattened. And then, of course, there's the possibility that, you know, there's a market shock, such as a geopolitical event that we're living through right now. And the long end of the curve tends to perform well, as we're seeing today. Um, so if you're managing a benchmark relative fixed income portfolio, you know, it just isn't as easy as just going underweight duration as the Fed begins hiking. Um, there's certainly the potential to miss out on returns if the longer end of the curve does not move up in sync with the policy rate. Yeah, Rick, yeah, that, that's great. And thank you. And I, I want to jump in with a question because I think for a lot of investors and, and certainly those who aren't as familiar with fixed income investing, you know, they anchor to this idea that when rates go up, bond prices go down, rates go down, bond prices go up. Uh, but you just provided some great context, uh, you know, to, to navigate the fact that there isn't a perfect cause and effect relationship for all fixed income securities, right? So uh, I'm going to ask you if you can talk a bit about how you balance those variables within the portfolio. And when I'm not talking about variables, I'm talking about diversification of corporates, high yields, government, short-term, intermediate-term, et cetera. <laughs> Yeah, so I think putting together, you know, a multi-sector fixed income portfolio, um, especially a benchmark relative one, is always about, you know, trade-offs, opportunity costs, um, risk offsets. Um, and in our world, valuations often guide us in how far we want to take that in terms of benchmark relative risk. Um, so if you had asked me this question at the end of 2021, um, I would have said that our priority had been to trim credit risk as there just wasn't much upside. You know, with high yield spreads below 300 basis points, investment grade spreads below 90, um, there wasn't much of an opportunity cost to de-risking from a spread sector perspective. And since we were able to de-risk our fixed income portfolio in terms of the credit sensitivity, um, the exposure to lower quality bonds, we then didn't need to hold on too much duration, too much treasury duration, since one of its key roles is the potential to offset that exposure to risk assets um, that you expose yourself with you know, corporate credit. Um, so since we were broadly underweight credit sectors, as well as underweight treasury duration, we were generally pretty well positioned for what we've seen so far this year. Um, but now clearly things have shifted a bit. Um, credit spreads had begun to widen even before this Russia-Ukraine event, um, and they have begun to show some value. Um, and so on the margin, we have begun taking on a little bit of that risk um, and vice versa to what I'd said before, when we tend to do that, we offset that risk with a little more nominal treasury exposure, just in case we do have a market event where credit sectors continue to weaken. And if that scenario does play out, you no know, nominal treasuries tend to outperform. So, we have to, so we've been able to offset some of our risk. Um, but in terms of where we're sourcing these ads, you know, we've been reducing our exposures to mortgage-backed securities and TIPS, which are treasury inflation-protected securities. Um, as we see little value in those areas right now, um, at least if we're talking about portfolios benchmarked against the Bloomberg Ag, uh, which does not have any TIPS in it. Thanks, Ricky. And that's, that's interesting that you mentioned, uh, you know, positioning relative to the benchmark, because my next question has to do with a more unconstrained approach. And uh, I know you manage our, our U.S. real return series, which is slightly different than a traditional asset allocation portfolio. So maybe you can talk us through some of those differences and, and how your management style may vary from a more traditional asset allocation lineup. Yeah, definitely a convenient 
transition point as I just finished talking about um, some of that benchmark relative um, exposures. In our U.S. real return portfolios, you know, we aren't measured against a benchmark like the ag. Um, so we want to consider the risk and reward of holding different pockets of the fixed income market and not only comparing those assets to other bonds, um, but also other asset classes. Um, and this includes being willing to hold more tips because they do offer the inflation protection we seek in an environment where the range of outcomes for inflation is very wide, even if break-evens aren't, quote-unquote, showing value relative to history. Um, and also, while we may not have a strong view of where 10-year Treasury yields are going to be one year from now, um, we do know where they are now, and they're low. Um, they're delivering negative real returns right now, which is a problem when the objective of the U.S. real return portfolios is to deliver a return over inflation. Um, so even if yields decrease from here, providing some capital appreciation to go with the income, um, the upside return potential is limited. Um, so when we look at the risk and reward profile, a profile that I would argue contains an asymmetric range of outcomes to the downside. Um, owning broad fixed income is just not attractive from a return generation standpoint uh, relative to pockets of the equity market or even alternative asset classes, um, even when you do take into account the increased risk. So I'm not just talking about upside, but I'm talking about the range of outcomes. Um, therefore, we have decreased our exposure to fixed income by a pretty good amount, as you can see on this slide. Great. Thanks, Ricky. That's helpful. And, I, you know, we hear more and more about, uh, you know, goals-based investing, outcome-based investing, where you're managing not just for a benchmark, but managing to a specific goal. So I think it's really helpful for, for myself and for, for our audience out there to hear how an unconstrained approach really allows you to manage, you know, and compare not just, say, fixed income investments to other fixed income investments, but really the entire opportunity set of potential investments out there. And, and as you mentioned, within that risk-reward framework. Uh, I will say, you know, kind of, a, I'll, I'll pose a similar question to you that I did to Tyler. You know, you paint a somewhat dire picture about fixed income moving forward. So with, with a more uh, traditional asset allocation portfolio in mind, uh, would you, do you still view fixed income as part of a diversified portfolio or should investors be looking elsewhere? Yeah, I don't mean to overplay it. Fixed income definitely still has a role in today's environment um, for any multi-asset investor, any multi-asset portfolio, um, even if we don't think it'll deliver reasonable returns in most environments. Um, we just think that role currently is, especially within the U.S. real return portfolios, is either through ballast or through dry powder, um, the dry powder I mentioned earlier. Um, therefore, in U.S. real return, with what fixed income we still hold, we really concentrate our positioning in treasury bonds and short-term bonds because those are the areas of the market that best serve those two portfolio roles. Um, so we've removed almost all of our low-quality bonds, high-yield and emerging market debt, for example, because we just think areas outside of the fixed income market are better return generators. Um, and therefore, by making the fixed income portion of our portfolio so conservative, it then allows you to take on more risk elsewhere. So if your fixed income portfolio is conservative, you can incrementally add um, to equities or alternatives. And so that's really what we've been doing on the margin, adding to equities and alts at the expense of fixed income. Um, and the strategies we use within the Morningstar Alts Fund are really intentionally designed to not rely on the movements of bond yields or equity prices. So they are really a solid um, diversifier in the market we've seen in 2022. Um, it's a low beta fund of which return generation really comes from alpha strategies. And the three sleeves within the fund are a convertible ARB strategy, a merger ARB strategy, and a systematic multi-strategy portfolio. So we think it offers um, certainly the fundamental diversification that we're seeking um, in an environment like what we've been in. Thanks, Ricky. It uh, sounds like you've got your hands full navigating a, a pretty unique market environment with a, uh, certainly a number of headwinds, but also areas of opportunity when you're taking a more uh, granular and active approach. So uh, thank you for that. We'll come back to you in a bit. And uh, just a reminder to our audience here to uh, submit your questions using the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. Uh, we've seen a few questions come in. I know Russia, Ukraine is on the mind of a lot of uh, investors out there right now. We will have some time at the end to answer your questions. So again, please do submit those using that Q&A button at the bottom of the screen. All right. Uh, I think that's a good segue to talk about another active strategy. And this time, uh, it's focused on individual equities, and uh, I want to bring in John Owens now. John, as I noted, uh, manages our all-cap equity portfolio and uh, has been a portfolio manager with us since 2009. So, John, uh, you are certainly no stranger to a variety of market environments. Now, one of the questions we hear a lot from investor centers around inflation concerns, and as investors, we know that Inflation could be quite damaging to businesses as they have to grapple with rising input prices and consumer spending might get pinched as well. 
So for a lot of businesses, this can be a drag on earnings. And uh, I'll turn to you to answer how you deal with that as a portfolio manager. Yeah, that's uh, a good question. And, and you're absolutely right, Brett. Uh, it, it can be damaging to businesses. And, and this is why the market really fears inflation so much. But I, I do think that our philosophy and approach to investing provides some protection here, uh, especially over the long run. Uh, let, me, let me ask you, go a little deeper, Don. Tell me about that. Yeah. So first, you know, we focus on high quality businesses. Uh, and this includes companies with significant competitive advantages or what we call economic moats. Uh, generally, these firms are in better position to pass along price increases to their customer. They also may have power over suppliers as well, and that can help limit rising input costs. So we, uh, you know, we also tend to favor more profitable companies, uh, especially asset light firms with solid balance sheets. Uh, these businesses just tend to hold up better during challenging times and, and perhaps even improve their competitive position as weaker firms struggle. I'll ask you a follow-up. Uh, you know, what else can you do as a portfolio manager to hedge against inflation and, and those potentially higher interest rates we've talked about? Well, I think being very disciplined, frankly, in buying and selling stocks is it's always important, but maybe even more important now. Uh, we believe that valuation really matters. So we seek to buy stocks at significant discounts to our estimate of their intrinsic value. And we think this may offer a margin of safety if inflation flares up further or if interest rates rise more than we expect. Uh, and also, when stocks approach or exceed our estimate of intrinsic value, we'll strive to be disciplined about selling as well. All right. Well, let me ask another follow-up here. I know it may vary by position in the portfolio. Some may be a discount, some may be a slight premium, but at the, at the portfolio level, uh, is, are either of your portfolios trading at a discount? Yes. Uh, you know, as of yesterday, both are trading at significant discounts. As of yesterday's close, I just calculated this this morning, all cap equity traded at a 19% discount to the aggregate fair value estimate, according to the Morningstar analyst. And we think the portfolio also compares favorably to the broad market uh, on other measures as seen on this slide here. Uh, basically, you look at the portfolio and you, you compare it to the benchmark, the Morningstar US market, it trades at much lower multiples of earnings, uh, much lower multiple of, uh, to cash flow and to book value while sacrificing very little when it relates to earnings growth in our view. Uh, all cap equity also offers a slightly higher dividend yield as well. So we like the portfolio's long-term prospects, uh, especially on a relative basis. That's great. Thanks, John. And, you know, I, I, this is a tough question to answer because I know I'm asking it in kind of a vacuum here and there's obviously a lot of variables at play, but how would you think all cap equity would fare in a rising interest rate environment? Well, Brett, I, I think our financials would service uh, well. Banks uh, should benefit from a wider spread between deposits and loans and insurance firms should see higher investment income with rising rates. Uh, and I'd note that all cap equity has a significant overweight to financials. Uh, roughly a 22% weighting, and, and that includes undervalued wide moat firms like Wells Fargo and Berkshire Hathaway. And that 22% weighting, that compares to 13% uh, for the broader market. Uh, in addition, if rising rates uh, are due to strong economic growth, uh, I think our financial firms would benefit from increased demand for loans and insurance. Uh, and under that strong economic growth scenario, our energy stocks should fare well too. Uh, energy accounts for roughly 6% weighting in the portfolio versus 3% for the benchmark. And on the other side of the ledger, you know, utilities may prove to be a little bit more vulnerable to rising interest rates uh, as bonds begin to look more attractive to conservative investors with higher rates. Uh, higher rates may also increase utilities borrowing costs. And I'd note in all cap equity, we don't have any exposure to individual utility stocks and, uh, versus the benchmark having a 3% weighting in utilities. 
Thanks, John. That's great. And I know it's always helpful for our audience and those that use the strategy to understand some of the give and take. If this happens, where might we see outperformance, where there might be more exposure? So thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, I do want to bring Tyler and Ricky back in here to to take some questions here. And uh, Tyler, I know that you've got some background in the energy space, which we just talked about. So I'll start with you and ask if you can share your thoughts on how the energy sector may fare in a rising rate and, and potentially persistent inflationary environment. Yeah, thanks, Brett. Yeah, John mentioned uh, above or earlier that energy is typically viewed as a sector that can be used as an inflation hedge. Um, I'll I'll give you a little bit of more background as far as how this is working out in the marketplace today. So what we've seen certainly is that short term, things have gone pretty well. Commodity prices have uh, been rallying. Oil, natural gas, both rallying. on geopolitical concerns, on supply demand uh, tightness. Uh, And, and, you know, I think it's pretty normal to see these types of short-term fluctuations, which are driven by commodity price movements. Um, What I would also say, and our observation would be that this type of strong pricing is not being baked into valuations today. So uh, in our view, substantially lower prices than are prevailing in the marketplace today are being baked into valuations. Um, And in part, I think this makes sense. Uh, There are obviously uh, well-known questions that are swirling around about the long-term investability of the sector because of questions around the future demand case for fossil fuels and whether the conventional energy companies, the major oils, the exploration production companies, whether they can transition their business models to capture different revenues from new energy. Um, and that remains to be seen. There's been quite a few developments in that direction, uh, some companies more than others, but the, the jury's still out there. What I think is not very disputable, though, is the uh, fundamental improvement that we've seen. And specifically, I think one thing I'd like to highlight here is capital discipline uh, and what I would call really much reduced spend that's been directed towards volume growth of conventional hydrocarbons. So putting it more simply, it seems as if companies are really reining in the purse strings. And as a result, there's much less of a growth imperative in this business. And I've always, you know, looking at the sector for a number of decades, I always wondered, why are you trying to grow five, six percent when your market grows two percent or one percent? So it seems as if the growth imperative in this business finally seems to have been taken out a little bit. And, And that means when there's excess cash flow, as we have today, companies are able to deploy it towards strengthening their balance sheets, towards paying dividends or buying back shares. And that seems to be pretty investor friendly. So, um, you know, I think that people thinking that through a little bit more, uh, plus the strong commodity environment, I think has, has led to pretty strong recent performance. And I guess what I would say in, in response to that is that, yes, it has been strong of late. But I would also say that long-term share returns have lagged the broad, broad indexes. And so, uh, you know, hard to say how long the catch-up trade continues, but, uh, but still, that is true, Brett, that we do have a pretty decent-sized position in energy. Thanks, Tyler. That's a, that's a really thoughtful response, and I, I especially appreciate it because we're having such a high-level kind of a macro discussion here today. But when you mentioned something like capital discipline, which really gets into the you know individual company level, and it highlights that there are just so many things to consider when talking about an investment, when making an investment, that that's, a, that's really great insight. So thank you. Uh, Ricky, uh, let me turn to you and bring you back in here. Uh, John, highlighted some of his financial and energy sectors as potential outperformers in a rising rate environment and some potential underperformers like utilities. Uh, so would you say, is it fair to say that you take a similar approach to, to sector exposures and diversifying your exposures via the mutual funds and sub-advisors within the funds in your portfolio? And uh, are there any differences you'd highlight in your construction process? Yeah, thanks, Brett. That's a good question. Um, First off, yeah, we certainly do have some of the similar overweights to financials um, because we're kind of looking at global markets. We have both U.S. and European financial overweights in our multi-asset portfolios. Um, so rising rates should definitely be a t- tailwind. Um, and we're generally underweighting the growth names, such as the large U.S. tech stocks, where higher discount rates may impact price movements more dramatically. Um, 
as Tyler mentioned, we've also have an overweight to energy that has done well recently and you know has provided tailwinds in high inflationary environments historically. So we think we're de- relatively well positioned um, for that environment. Um, in terms of our differences within portfolio construction, you know the obvious one, but you know I think one that's worth on, expanding on a bit is really just the tools we have to implement kind of diversification, fundamental diversification. Um, so if your universe is strictly U.S. equities, you're certainly thinking about sector, industry, diversification, quality, all the things John has mentioned and can certainly speak to better than me. Um, but, you know, reality is when equity markets are down, there's a good chance your whole portfolio may also be down. Some names are just going to hold up better than others. Um, but in a multi-asset portfolio, and especially in a multi-asset portfolio that's not tied to a market-based benchmark, we really get the most bang for our buck in being intentional about where we are positioned on the fixed income side, really just to offset the risks we're taking on the equity side. Um, because the opportunity cost of using your bond portfolio for diversification to offset risks um, is far less than having to compromise on your high high conviction equity positions, um, which you know, just so you can allow for more, more intra equity diversification. Um, so, in terms of positioning for a rising rate environment, you know, as we mentioned, as Tyler mentioned, we think our equity positioning is set up quite nicely for that. In terms of not only where valuations are today um, and our overweights, but also with where we are underweight, specifically in the U.S. large cap growth names. Um, but then we also obviously want to answer where, where could this go wrong? Um, and perhaps ironically, given the discussion we're having today, you know, the, the scenario where our equity positioning disappoints is probably in an economic downturn that's un- accompanied by really a fall in longer term rates. Um, and therefore, as I mentioned before, we really don't want to completely remove some of those longer term nominal treasury exposures as those you know, are most likely are sourced to offset losses that we would occur in our equity positioning and really the most dangerous environment for us. Great. Thank you, Ricky. That's helpful. And uh, John, I'll just bring you back in. Anything you want to add here? Yeah, Brett, I, I might just build off a little bit uh, from Ricky's comments there and, and just reiterate, and I think we all know this, but but rising interest rates you know, basically tend to lead to higher discount rates. And all else equal, higher discount rates lead to lower stock valuations, lower bond valuations. So uh, Buffett has referred to rising interest rates as, as gravity uh, you know, for f- financial investments. So it's just basic math. But one thing that I want to emphasize is uh, this is especially true for growth stocks. And Ricky alluded to this, that uh, you know, growth stocks tend to have more duration risk because their valuations are more dependent on earnings farther into the future. And I think a lot of investors these days are overweighted to growth stocks, especially to U.S. large cap growth stocks. Uh, This is true even for passive investors in an S&P 500 index fund, which now has a significant tilt to U.S. large cap growth stocks. So in terms of being prepared, I think these investors should really seek more diversification I think a couple of my portfolios, all cap equity and small mid cap equity would fit that bill as being a portfolio that, that provides some diversification to a U.S. large cap growth portfolio. I think some of my colleagues' portfolios with Tortoise, uh, equity income, dividend, and international equity portfolios would also provide some diversification within their equity exposure. So something to bear in mind. And I think it's something that may be top of mind as, as we've seen recently that, that, that growth stocks are, have had a bit of a tough go of it. And, you know, we, I'm not going to be able to definitively say that which would outperform value and growth over the near to intermediate term. Uh, but I do think that uh, that's why you want to be diversified. You want to have some stocks in your portfolio zig when others zag. And, and so that's, I just, that's all I'd like to add there. Thanks, John. I, I, you know, you mentioned something. I'm glad you did uh, talking about you know market cap weighted passive investors and index funds. And uh, I, I want to dive a bit deeper there because you can probably make similar statements about some passive uh, fixed income funds and ETFs as well. So I'm, I'm going to turn to Tyler and Ricky here as well to share their thoughts. But uh, for clients who are overweight growth stocks or they're in market cap weighted index funds or or have exposure to some of those longer duration funds. Uh, do you view them as particularly exposed to the downside in a rising rate environment? And uh, Tyler, why don't we start with you? Yeah, thanks, Brett. Uh, yeah, you know, John really talked 
eloquently about the concept of how, as interest rates rise, discount rates rise. And I think to maybe put a little bit more perspective on that and flesh that out a little bit, um, the, this concept of long duration equities, or which tend to be growth stocks, what does that actually mean? And the way I like to think about it is sort of what percentage of my cash flows am I getting, say, from today for the next five years versus in the out years? So that those cash flows that are coming from beyond five years. And what tends to happen with growth-oriented issues, uh, you know, large cap growth stocks, small cap growth stocks, is that you get more of your cash flow in the out years. And so the reason why the discount rate is important is because in a tailwind environment of, of lower or reduced interest rates, that discount rate falls, and the, then the value that's ascribed on a discounted basis to the out year cash flows is higher, and therefore stocks can rise to that value. Whereas the flip side is when the discount rate rises, uh, the out year cash flows are more severely penalized, more severely discounted, and that causes a valuation reset downward. And so that's, I think, the mechanism, if you will, financial theory wise, of how that all happens. And I think that, again, it, is a, it, it becomes risky from an equity perspective when, you, when you've had an environment over the last 10, 11, 12 years where growth-oriented companies have become a much more significant part of your passive index uh, environment, such as the S&P 500, the Russell 1000. You've, you, you've got a much more significant growth bucket as a percentage of those index weights. And so... You know, that's what I would say. I, I think Ricky is very uh, prepared to speak about the fixed income side. Thanks, Tyler. Uh, good segue. Ricky, we'll, uh, we'll hand it over to you to add some, some thoughts on the fixed income. Yeah, I mean, I think bringing, tying it to both inflation and rising rates, um, and I think active security selection is really, you know, the key tool um, that we can achieve through our supervisors where they can look at companies that are better positioned um, for higher and persistent inflation, that they have pricing power that's not going to you know, impact their ability to service their debt. Um, they can also utilize floating rate notes and be more active on the yield curve. It's not necessarily taking large duration bets, um, but they, certain portions of the curve will show certain um, degrees of value throughout this hiking cycle, and they could take advantage of that. Um, but it's also just worth mentioning that the duration on the Bloomberg U.S. aggregate is more than 1.7 years longer than it was 10 years ago. So if you're a passive investor, that's what you're basically buying. Um, and so while a 200 basis point parallel shift in the yield curve may have cost fixed income investors you know, single digits in capital depreciation a decade ago, um, it's now going to cost them over 13%. Um, so yes, passive investors are more exposed to rising rates and inflation compared to active investors just based on you know, security selection and being prepared for a rising rate environment. Um, but also they're just more meaningfully exposed than they have been historically um, due to the makeup of the bond market and its extension and in interest rate risk. Thank you, Ricky. And really, thank, you know, I want to thank all three of you because you just provided some really great insights and a lot of depth on the subject. And really, you know, there's a lot of different takeaways from this. I think the biggest one for me would be that this is a really complex topic. And, and we talk about diversification and the importance of diversification all the time. And really, that that approach and, and taking a, a more granular look at your portfolio and how you're positioned in there is really one of the best ways to protect yourself from a pretty unpredictable environment. So, so thank you guys for providing that context. Uh, I do want to make sure that we've got some time to answer questions from our audience. And so I'll add another reminder here to submit your questions using the Q&A button uh, at the bottom of the screen. And a, uh, another shout out that we will be sending a replay of this recording uh, with slides to all registered participants. Uh, we will also be including our newest insights article that is focused on uh, the Russia-Ukraine conflict and uh, potential market impact there. So that will be included once it becomes available. So keep an eye out for that as well, as I know that is top of mind for many of us. So again, if you do have questions for Tyler, Ricky, or John, the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen here. And uh, 
we've got a few already. So uh, I'm going to start from the top here. And, and uh, Ricky, I'm going to send this one your way. So you're going to go back to back here. Sorry about that. And uh, this first one is focused on inflation. And uh, uh, well, rather, it's really focused on both. But it's asking, do you view inflation or rising rates as more of a concern for investors right now? Thanks. Yeah. So I, mean, I think they're both concerns. Um, but when we think about rising rates, um, and we're certainly aware of the risk that this entails, um, as we've both seen year to date, talked about here today, um, rising interest rates can cause you to lose value really in all parts of a multi-asset portfolio. Bonds lose value. Stocks can be impacted by the discount rate as we've gone over. Um, and even most alternative strategies struggle when both stocks and bonds are down. Um, you now, perhaps the light at the end of the tunnel is this often is relatively short term. And once those risks settle, you're left with opportunities. Um, bonds are offering higher yields and many, many equities may be cheaper after a potential overreaction. Um, so as we're looking at it over the long term, the short term pain really has the potential to provide attractive opportunities um, that actually benefit you know, the portfolio overall long term. As long term um, investors, that's really what we're focusing on. Um, inflation, on the other hand, it really just erodes value, even if asset prices don't move. Um, at the end of the day, by investing, you're trying to increase your spending power, whether that be in a few years or a few decades. Um, and if inflation comes at a, in at higher rates than investment returns can keep up with, um, you're effectively losing value and your purchasing power has come down. Um, and so while you know, we aren't going to have a strong conviction in an inflation projection. Um, we certainly acknowledge the range of outcomes is really wide right now. Um, and if we do have high and persistent inflation for a period of time, that's likely to harm investors a significant amount, um, regardless of how their investments perform. So my vote would be that inflation is a, is a bigger long-term concern to investors. Thanks, Ricky. That's helpful to hear your perspective there. Um, I know we've got uh, some questions uh, that we want to get to on Russia, Ukraine. And but just before we do, I'll just note that, you know, we're viewing this through the perspective of the markets. Obviously, this is a personal subject for, for some out there. So obviously, uh, you know, we're viewing this through one lens, but, but cognizant of the fact that this may be personal for some out there. So just want to get to mention that at the get go here. And uh, Tyler, we're going to send this question your way and ask if you can share your thoughts on uh, the potential market impact of sustained fight between Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, thanks, Brett. And yes, uh, I definitely want to say that. I mean, this this is very personal for people that we know, and uh, and and it's a tough situation. And so, uh, you know, very much uh, hoping for a, an outcome that is okay. Um, as far as the, you know, we've seen a, a rapid escalation be, become baked into uh, investor sentiment very quickly, and you know, understandably so. Uh, we've seen a meaningful setback in. Several key financial markets, uh, increased volatility, speculation about what comes next. And I think that to some extent, this is normal amid uncertainty, uh, but it's worth stepping back, I think, to understand the fundamentals of the situation. Uh, there are a wide range of potential scenarios and outcomes that are possible from here. And as multi asset investors, we try to avoid predicting these pathways explicitly and rather look instead at the potential implications across assets. And so I think certainly what leaps to mind first and foremost is energy markets. And it's an area that we think will be vividly impacted at a minimum for the short term. And I'm certainly happy to dig deeper on this if, if there's interest. Um, as far as Russian stocks uh, and bonds, Russian equities, uh, accounted for, uh, as of this morning, about 2.6% of the emerging market basket uh, and 4.1% of the emerging market local currency bonds basket. And so while clearly the local market reaction has been quite severe, the numbers don't necessarily argue for a long-term significant impact or impairment uh, in emerging markets holdings. Um, but definitely there's been some short-term uh, dislocation for sure. Um, you know, during wars, the historical track record of the equity markets broadly has been mixed uh, with some conflicts uh, like the Crimea, Crimea invasion in 2014 left equity markets barely, uh, barely changed at all. Uh, so I, I would definitely say that, you know, if you can keep your long term time horizon, it's probably going to be well placed and help, help you stay invested. And I guess that leads me to some behavioral thoughts here. 
and how our process at Morningstar Investment Management helps us to think through situations like this. And, you know, we consider ourselves long-term investors. And so in situations like this, you know, we think it's important to keep one's bearings and not lose that long-term perspective. And so unsettling headlines, they can lead to fear. And so on a behavioral finance basis, that can lead to suboptimal decisions. And those suboptimal decisions can undermine long-term uh, return objectives. And, and so I think that's very important to know. Second point I'd make, we're, we also considered ourselves to be valuation-driven investors. And so for us, we think it's important to be alert and prepared during periods of uncertainty and volatility, such as this conflict. And so we see that there are potentially these short-term fluctuations allow us uh, to uncover potentially significant investment opportunities at, at attractive valuations. And then we also consider ourselves fundamental investors. And so how we like to think this through is that it's important to assess and understand any of these potential long-term market implications for this type of conflict based on fundamentals. So there are certain impacts that are relatively clear and mostly well understood by market participants, but there are others less obvious impacts that need to also be thought through and addressed. Uh, you know, so for one, and we've got already an environment of rising global inflation pressures. Uh, we have enormous pressure on central banks, particularly in the developed markets, uh, to tighten monetary policy. Um, and so we, we don't see that necessarily changing uh, in the long, longer or medium term, not, not changing very much. Uh, and so, again, like we've talked about multiple times during this uh, conversation today, it's a bit of a headwind for fixed income investments, particularly in developed markets. Uh, equity markets, not going to be impacted equally. Russia clearly is one example where it's been devastating. Um, but, um, it, you know, it's possible that market and certain issues in, in that market continue to weaken. Um, also, as far as the extent to which these inflation pressures continue, uh, and I think that Russia has a, a pretty interesting and significant impact on the global supply chain, not just for energy, not just for European gas, but also for grains and uh, precious metals and aluminum. So there are several commodities at which Russia is a very significant uh, exporter. Uh, that could have, you know, significant potential incremental inflation pressures uh, driven by you know, further potential supply chain issues. And so uh, that could potentially raise speculation on interest rates uh, and, uh, and, and speaking to a discount rate that could have an impact on these longer duration high multiple growth equities. Um, there are potential beneficiaries. Uh, you know, we mentioned energy earlier. I think the backdrop is reasonably favorable for those companies fundamentally, as I discussed. Uh, and to the extent that you have a period of elevated energy prices, that we don't believe is discounted into the shares today. So I guess what I've just described is a multi-dimensional chess match. As with everything we've discussed today, Tyler, a lot of moving parts. And uh, for me, that, that was interesting to, to hear you, you talk about the, uh, the relatively small presence uh, for Russian equities in the emerging market basket and, and really same for the, the fixed income EM basket as well. That's, a, that's kind of a surprisingly low number given the, the kind of outside presence of, of Russia certainly right now. Yeah. Um, I do want to make sure we hear from, from Ricky and John here on the subject. So Ricky, I'll, uh, I'll, start, to, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think Tyler really hit it on the head and got, you know, detailed on different positions. Um, but at the highest level, I think these type of environments are really where our investment philosophy and our investment principles really earn their keep. Um, we definitely need to manage our risk for sure and make sure we're not overexposed to the assets whose downside has increased. Those assets whose fair value will see impairment uh, to a significant amount. Um, but just as important, uh, we need to be looking for opportunities. Um, in scenarios like this, when seemingly everything is selling off, you know, we think about if that actually makes sense from a fundamental perspective. Um, fundamental risk has certainly increased for various assets as Tyler has gone through. Um, but will there really be long-term fundamental deterioration for every pocket of the U.S. stock market to the extent that justifies these lower prices? I mean, maybe. Um, but as Tyler said, the market tends to overreact in the short term. And just like we did in March of 2020, 
you know, I think our job is to be looking for opportunities to find assets whose prices have moved lower than really what the long-term fundamental picture should justify. Thank you, Ricky. And uh, John, we'll, uh, we'll turn to you to offer your thoughts here. Sure. I'll, I'll add my two cents and just excellent insights from both Tyler and, and Ricky. It's, it's great to work alongside and collaborate with, with, with these guys. But uh, just from my perspective, uh, the, the Russian-Ukraine conflict really reminds me of, of the old quote from Donald Rumsfeld about the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns. And, and from my perspective, uh, there are a lot of unknowns here. And personally, I don't think I have uh, much of an edge on assessing the impact of, of this on the short-term direction of the market. Uh, what I would say as it relates to all-cap equity is that that we don't have any uh, direct exposure to Russian or Ukrainian firms. But I think, you know, just echoing what my colleagues have said before, just taking a step back and thinking about the long term here, you know, past military conflicts uh, didn't stop the market from advancing. Uh, Buffett noted that the Dow rose from 66 to 11,497 last century. And that was despite two world wars and other military conflicts. Uh, and also another famed fund manager, uh, Brian Rogers, used to say that the world doesn't end that often. And I think that's a good bet here. I hope that's a good bet here. And so we're just going to keep a, a steady hand on the tiller. And as uh, my colleagues have alluded to, if, if this market volatility provides us some opportunities along the way, We'll certainly uh, be nimble and, and try to seize those. And you know, with all cap equity, it's a go anywhere portfolio. We can invest across market cap spectrums from value to growth styles. We can invest in domestic and foreign stocks. So we'll be keeping an eye out across our universe for those kind of opportunities. Thank you, John. That's great, and I think you you said it very well. It's great to work alongside you guys and to be able to uh, to hear your insights on a variety of topics here. Uh, I think we are have answered all the questions. So if there are no other ones, we will call it there. So uh, again, I'll thank you, Tyler, Ricky, and John, for a, a really lively discussion, and thanks to everyone who joined us on today's webinar and submitted questions. Uh, we really. You know, greatly appreciate the opportunity to engage with you and further discuss some of these key concerns like inflation and rising rates and certainly the geopolitical issues of today that are top of mind for your clients. And this is it for this episode for Simple Banad Easy. As always, we appreciate you taking the time to hear what we have to say. Look for new episodes on your favorite podcast platform and drop by mp.morningstar.com for more investment analysis and thought leadership. Thank you and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. No Morningstar entity, including Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services, shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar makes no representation as of the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision. 